It recognizes gallantry that goes above and beyond the call of duty in the face of an enemy attack. The tradition of awarding this honor began during the Civil War, and many of those who have received the medal have given their lives in the action that earned it. Today we add Lieutenant Michael Murphy's name to the list of recipients who have made the ultimate sacrifice. Deep in the mountains of Afghanistan, this brave officer gave his life in defense of his fellow Navy SEALs. Two years later, the story of his sacrifice humbles and inspires all who hear it. And by presenting Michael Murphy's family with the Medal of Honor that he earned, a grateful nation remembers the courage of this proud Navy SEAL. I appreciate the fact that we've got uh, Barney Barnum, Tom Kelly, Tommy Norris, and Mike Thornton, Medal of Honor recipients with us today. We do welcome Dan Murphy and Maureen Murphy, father and mother of Michael Murphy, John Murphy, his brother, and other family members that are with us today. It's my honor to welcome all the friends and comrades of Lieutenant Michael Murphy here to the White House. Michael's decision to join the military wasn't an easy one for his family. As a Purple Heart recipient during Vietnam, Michael's father understood the sacrifices that accompany a life of service. Fewer than a third of those who begin this intense training program graduate to become Navy SEALs. There was little doubt about the determined lieutenant from New York. In 2002, Michael earned his Navy SEAL Trident. They remember a patriot who wore a New York City firehouse patch on his uniform in honor of the heroes of 9-11. And they remember an officer who respected their opinions and led them with an understated yet unmistakable sense of command. Together, Michael and his fellow SEALs deployed multiple times around the world in the war against the extremists and radicals. While their missions were often carried out in secrecy, their love of country and devotion to each other was always clear. On June 28, 2005, Michael would give his life for these ideals. While conducting surveillance on a mountain ridge in Afghanistan, he and three fellow SEALs were surrounded by a much larger enemy force. Their only escape was down the side of a mountain, and the SEALs launched a valiant counterattack while cascading from cliff to cliff. But as the enemy closed in, Michael recognized that the survival of his men depended on calling back to the base for reinforcements. With complete disregard for his own life, he moved into a clearing where his phone would get reception. He made the call, and Michael then fell under heavy fire. Yet his grace and upbringing never deserted him. Though severely wounded, he said thank you before hanging up and returned to the fight before losing his life. Matter of fact, welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. Back on co-hosting with me is Chantel Taylor, uh, former British Army combat medic and author of the book Battle Worn. Uh, Chantel, how you been? Hey, good. It's glad to, I'm glad to be back. It's been busy. 
Yeah, it felt weird without, with, uh, without you on here. Did you miss me, John? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Publicly um, said you. <laughs> yeah, so, so back on the podcast with us is uh, former U.S. Navy SEAL and author of the best-selling book, The Last Punisher, uh, Kevin Lace. Kevin, what's up, brother? John Chantel, good to have me on. Doing all right down here. It's funny enough, uh, Kevin, because you, you've been on a podcast before, but for someone who's already been on the podcast, I've gotten so many emails from different people asking to get you on the podcast. And I'm like, did people just like miss that? Or <laughs> No, know? actually, I'd pay, I'd pay all those people to email <laughs> you so they get me back on. But I think sometimes there's more to cover. Like they probably had questions, you know, where you because you, you can't discuss everything and, you know, oh, and, and right, the right. time time we have on so that's probably it you know if someone's got a story to tell they want to know more yeah it was just weird like uh, you know so sometimes people email and say oh you know this might be an interesting topic or this person might be interesting to cover and i'm reading it i'm like oh yeah this guy kevin lace would be cool i'm like oh yeah i had him on the podcast and then i just keep getting these these emails from different people kind of interesting well i'm honored i'm honored definitely you know we've, we've received a lot of support from the book and um you know Lindsay and i have been around the country and, you know, and sometimes been around the world, um, you know, promoting the book. So we're, we've met a lot of cool people and, um, the stories have definitely stuck with us and we're you know, happy to share. You know, these, these books are important for, for several reasons, but one for, you know, people to kind of know what's going on in these war zones and, and what guys like yourself, uh, are, are going through in, in a, in a real and emotional way. And then, on top of that, what I feel is one of the most important points or takeaways from these books is that they inspire the next generation of uh, warriors, you know? And and I think you can't put a, like, you can't quantify how important that is, you know? I agree. You know, it's interesting you say that because I was talking to somebody in Chicago yesterday and they were mentioning how, you know, they were asking about Syria and what's going on. And they're like, I, I really don't feel like I can believe the news these days. And I was like, I, I think you're about right. And, you know, the books lend, um, you know, a deeper look into the situations, the operations and the people that are you know telling those stories. And I, he asked me, like, where do you where do you think the truest information is coming from some of these areas? And, you know, quite frankly, it's either on YouTube or some of these Instagram, you know, accounts, because those people are just uploading from what's going on. And it's not filtered by mainstream media right absolutely right and it's you know the the this this new battlefield is so different from any of the past because it started in vietnam where you had you know kind of live reporting from the the war zone and then now you have and, and that's coming from a certain source you know one or two outlets or whatever it might be but now with social media and everything you're getting videos from battles and stuff like that that are, have just taken place and there's no filter on them. So you kind of get a look into what's happening in some areas and it's it's really quite incredible. I agree. I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's, and I suppose at some sort of stage, when uh, news outlets get, get hold of them, they can tend to, and what we've seen, is, you know, definitely here in the UK is they, they swing it to their own affiliation. So whatever, whatever sort of, um, especially politically, which whoever they're kind of behind, that's the, do you know what I mean? They always seem to spin it in a, a different way. But you're right about these um, forms of social media. They do, they get the story out there. Sometimes it's a bad thing, but for the majority of the time, at least you get some sort of ground truth by, you know, 
physically see, you know, seeing it or hearing it from um, guys on the ground. Sure. Absolutely. Um, so, Kevin, so before we, we jump into some of the stuff we're going to talk about, can you just give a quick background, uh, you know, from your, your time in the Navy? Sure. Um, you know, I joined the Navy. Uh, you know, I grew up in a family who always supported the military, but, um, you know, I had an event in my life, you know, just about everybody over this age of 16 at the same event. It was 9-11 um, that changed my perspective and really the direction that I was going. I wasn't a very outstanding college student, but the terrorist attacks, you know, hit close to home, had a family friend who was killed in Trade Center and um, kind of prompted me to enlist in the Navy, you know, with the intention of becoming a SEAL by it all means, by all means, no guarantees. Um, but I kind of took the, you know, situation I was in and turned it more into a positive by, you know, striking out on my own and, and going to BUDS. I graduated in class 246. From there, you know, I did the SEAL qualification training, jump school. I did the um, uh, 18 Delta program, became a combat medic and landed at SEAL Team 3 right in the 2005 timeframe and um, worked up for my first deployment, which was in Ramadi 2006. Um, by the time we deployed, I'd gone to sniper school. So I was a sniper and a medic and, um, you know, cut my teeth. And one, one of the one of the more memorable um, battles of Western Iraq, which was Ramadi pre-surge in 2006, um, deployed again with you know, some guys that are now household names like Mike Monsoor, Mark Lee, Ryan Job, Chris Kyle. And um, we did a lot of good things with the Army, the Air Force and the Marines in Ramadi that helped you know, set the stage for the surge of 2007. I um, deployed again in 2008 to the western edge of Iraq on the Syrian border and spent um, six months out there doing about the same. Got out in 2010, went back to school at the University of Connecticut and then grad school and became a physician assistant. And now um, I'm a physician assistant here in Florida, uh, in addition to um, a co-author of a, of a best-selling book, The Last Punisher, with my wife and Ethan Rocky, who's a former Marine combat correspondent. And we detail uh, that battle, battle of Ramadi um, to help tell that complete story of and not only the SEAL teams, but, um, you know, the, the work of the Army and the uh, Air Force and the Marines. An interesting book because, I mean, there's been literature out before that, but obviously uh, Chris Cowan, he put out his book. Uh, he details some of that, and it, it just gave you an insight to what, what was going on there and, and, you know, what Americans were facing and, and what Iraqis were facing with the insurgency and, and some of those foreign uh, terrorist groups who were operating there. Um, you know, so by the time you came in, you were finished with your, you know, you went through BUDS, you went through your qualification training. And then you, when you got to your SEAL platoon, they had just gotten back from a deployment, right? Correct. Yeah, SEAL Team 3 had come back from, you know, a bunch of guys out PACOM. And then the um, guys from Iraq started rotating back and, and they were spread out throughout the countryside. You know, some were down in Baghdad and others were up, you know, um, in the Battle of Fallujah. And some of them particularly were a lot of the um, you know, guys who brought a lot of knowledge to our second, my first deployment, um, you know, their second one to Iraq, which was Ramadi. And guys like Chris, you know, Chris Kyle started, um, you know, developing that sniper doctrine that we um, together perfected, you know, the, the SEAL Team 3 task unit bruiser did in 2006, which was, using special forces snipers in um, conjunction with conventional troops to help, you know, deter enemy movement, enemy, um, you know, IED um, emplacements, <laughs> and then a lot of coordinated attacks. So 
Um, you know, and just, we use- just Kevin, on just before you go forward of that, I found that really interesting that you that he developed that because that was that's kind of unseen to have a special forces um, unit actually going. You know, do you know what I mean? It was quite an interesting thing. How did that come about? Mm-hmm. You know, who? So, you know, the, the whole idea of special forces is simply to be fo- force multipliers um, in, in unconventional warfare. And, um, you know, the Battle of Ramadi um, differed from Fallujah. Fallujah was simply cordon off or block off the city, you know, tell the women and children to leave. And then the men are going to go ahead and fight it out. It's Al-Qaeda versus coalition. And that had a lot of negative ramifications politically um, socially for how that battle was portrayed, you know, um, so yeah. Ramadi was more of a clear hold and build. So it would be a more, a softer approach to stomping out the enemy. And this is where special forces, um, were utilized side by side with conventionals, um, without having to kick the women and children out, but to move yeah. block by block road by road. Um, and we did this, um, as a team through primarily sniper overwatches and, um, it'd been done in the past, but not on such a big scale to the best of my knowledge. And um, since Ramadi was, you know, that area where a lot of foreign fighters were coming, a lot of people wanted to fight coalition, it made it a very target-rich environment. So, um, you know, the steam that all of us started generating as, you know, more and more targets to the ground, that helped, you know, really turn the tide in Western Iraq. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, an amazing, it's quite an amazing concept, actually, and and the kind of the, the the success that you had there speaks for it speaks for the idea working. Yeah, and you know, prior to that, there there's always been that um, you know kind of a uh, you know people see as special forces just you know hanging hang especially seals you know it's like they just sit and wait for that mission to uh, to prime and then they go. Um, and, you know, that's, some units do that, and that's what they're supposed to do. Um, and I'm not taking anything away from them. And the, the missions they've done are pretty incredible, and the results you know, have yielded a ton of information. Really bad guys have hit the ground. Um, but where we were used as more of a quasi-special forces um, group, and we worked quite a bit with the conventionals. And um, I think that, you know, one kind of broke down a lot of um, preconceptions people had about SEALs. Um, and, you know, we found that we meshed well with the uh, the Marines and the Army, and you know, we were able to systematically go through that city uh, together and, and really root out that insurgency. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, and I, I guess you know it's it's an interesting way to to utilize you know special operations forces, uh, particularly snipers. Uh, when when your platoon when you first got to your platoon, uh, and you know you met Chris Kyle and all these guys, and you were the new guy. Uh, were they already was Chris already a sniper at that point, or did he go to sniper school after that? Yes, Chris was a sniper prior to he. Um, I think he had 19 confirmed kills and 18 or 19 confirmed kills in Fallujah, um, which at that time was you know quite a bit, especially for you know a West Coast team guy. And that's when he started gaining a lot of um, the notoriety within the community. And um, you know, Chris was a uh, um, an unconventional guy with uh, with wisdom. You know, I always make the analogy. You know, have you ever met somebody on your team that knows everything? And um, you know, you get a lot of chuckles when you ask that question and people kind of infer like, well, Chris knew everything. Um, Chris knew a lot about being a sniper, but he had the ability to teach people about being a sniper. And I don't mean, you know, how to put a reticle on a target and squeeze a trigger, but more so how to conduct yourself as a sniper. And I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of power given to somebody behind a gun, particularly a sniper in a target rich environment. Um, and then there's also the negative impacts you can have if you 
um, are uh, not careful or you know over aggressive and can really be more of a detriment to your unit um, and the cause in which you're fighting. And I think Chris helped um, you know really articulate that to young snipers like myself. Um, you know, people in the platoon, you know, my other medic was a uh, sniper as well. And guys that had not been in combat situations like Chris and Chris was a guy who knew everything, but was willing, willing to communicate to new snipers to get people up to speed to a war that, you know, he had experienced. And we were just stepping forth into for the first time. Right, right. I'm just with- when you say, Kevin, about obviously you're talk, talking about uh, medics as well as snipers, now, and clearly you've gone through your SEAL training, so you, you're all um, you're all sort of shooters first. But I always get asked the question of having had to um, engage a, like an enemy fighter before, and they they always bring up the question, but you know, but you're a medic, and I always make the point of, but the word combat comes before medic, you know, and it's tr- trying to explain that to to people who aren't um, military savvy or aren't in the military, they, they, they find it very hard to understand. And obviously, you're an, you're an 18 Delta, but you're also a sniper. So you're almost like the the two you know opposite ends of the spectrum. Do you get asked that? How Does anyone actually... Because they ask it a lot in my country. Yeah, all the time. I, re- I remember being in Navy boot camp and you know people are like, well, but you're a hospital corpsman and you want to be a SEAL. Like, what, do you, what does that even mean? Um, <laughs> And, I, and I, I attribute that to exactly what we talked about earlier is, you know, where people get their sources of information. You know, when you watch a World War II, you know, uh, war movie, you see a, um, you know, uh, a medic with a cross, you know, running up to battle without a gun. Um, yeah. You know, Hacksaw Ridge, movies like that. And people form their opinion of what medics do. And it's true, you know, in, in some wars, that's exactly what medics did. They were non-combatants. But as we saw more and more, you know, conventional wars go to the wayside and we fight more guerrilla wars, um, unconventional wars with insurgencies, you know, they don't adhere to the Geneva Convention. So, you know, the role of combat medic has evolved that a combat medic is first a part of that team as a, you know, aggressor force. um, But he still has a skill set, he or she has a skill set, you know, in reserve to utilize. Um, And that's, and, and that's the way it's gone. And, you know, I always ask the question when people say, uh, well, what do you do when one of your buddies gets shot? And they're like, well, you drop down and you, you know, start applying you know, pressure or whatever. And I'm like, no, you shoot back because um, fire yeah. superiority and suppressing, you know, the enemy is step number one for effective hemorrhage control. And, um, yeah, I, I think it's important when people read these books or they listen to these podcasts, they learn how medics operate. And as a team, team guy medic, you know, I was a shooter first and I was a, a medic second. Yeah, definitely. And again, that's the point I always try and make is that, you know, the, the word combat comes first. So you can you could even just look at that. And that's when I joined the military. I, I chose that job. But yeah, you, you're exactly right. That it's, it's good to the, the stuff that we've all been involved in has um, has kind of brought that to the forefront. And it's, it's so important now that medics are trained far better tactically. You know, that's a, and it's something that we've taken away. So especially as the, you know, the Brits have taken that away and um, the trainings change accordingly, so that's it's a positive, I guess. I agree. Yeah, so, Kevin, in your book, um, you know, you you, you mentioned uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Grossman, who is the author of the book on killing, which, which I read. Uh, Chantel, I'm not sure if you read it or you're familiar with it, uh, but he basically, in a kind of breaking it down quickly, he studied the psychology of killing. And he he went through different wars, 
and talked about how the the psychology changed and how uh, the training changed in in order to bring up the effectiveness of the warfighter and uh, you know killing uh, different people and this is something else he talked about was like it affects people differently some people even in special operations units some guys you know they might get their their first kill and then kind of be repulsed by it and and you know they say this is not for me and then s- some people were, are able to do it are able to kill an enemy in combat and continue to deploy and continue to fight uh and and do what they have to do so did did you read that book uh before you wrote your book or was did that happen afterwards I did. I, I listened to uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman speak twice before each of my deployments, and I read On Killing you know, prior to my first deployment, and then I read his second book, On Combat, shortly after. Um, and it definitely la- made a, you know, a mark um, on, you know, on me as kind of a, in the back of my mind, what type of group do I find myself in? And you know, at the end of that first deployment, I was like, okay, I guess I fall in that you know, 2% crowd that can go ahead and conduct business and keep going without the, you know, psychological, physiological, um, you know, um, changes that, you know, are experienced by most. And that having gone through that, you know, really was one of the themes that we wanted to, you know, infuse into the book. And, you know, I get a lot of people who pick up on that because they're like, we don't really hear that when we read, you know, a memoir, or we hear a, a war book, is, you know, how did that affect you? Because it's kind of like, I hear it that people write that I'm just a tough guy and I just push through it. But it, there's no, you know, um, psychological approach to um, having gone through that combat and those experiences and how it affects you and how it sits with you and how you sleep at night in those um, scenarios. So I wanted to bring that to the forefront because it's important to read, you know, you know how, how you put your feet in front of you when you're walking down the street, but also, you know, what you're thinking when you're about to squeeze a trigger and you've got somebody in the crosshairs. Um, and then also the 10, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, um, 10 minutes, or even, you know, three years later, how you react to that situation. Because I think that's what, um, I think that's what drives people to, to, to dig deeper and read more and listen to more of these is what makes that person tick and why are they like that? And am I like that? Um, and how do I relate to it without having to go to combat or, you know, go through buds and be a team guy. So we wanted that to be a theme and, you know, Grossman, um, Grossman's book really resonated with me and, um, Lindsay and I put a pen to paper with Ethan and made that a essential theme. Right. And, and Chantel actually, you know, Chantel has a, a couple of deployments. She's been a couple of different places, but, uh, she was in Afghanistan and in her book, she talks about this in detail where, you know, they were ambushed and she engaged and killed an enemy fighter, um, and and actually Chantel is renowned as the first uh, female in British military history to do so. Uh, Chantel, can we talk about some of that? Like what kind of what was going through your mind at the time and, and how you felt uh, before and after? Yeah, um, sure. Um, I was just going to say, actually, I think um, on Kevin's point that it's always important to respect what you're doing. You know, I, I always thought from kind of from the get go that I always would respect you know, where I was, who I was with, what, you know, why I was there kind of thing, as opposed to just being, just being a bum on a seat, you know, just sort of turning up and not really um, understanding what was good, sort of going on around me. But again, right. I deal with things like that. It's important to respect 
so say you know Kevin's a sniper, and then he obviously respects what he, what that weapon can do, and all of the, those sorts of things. So it's, I think the psychology behind that is actually um, really important because a lot of the times people would think, you know, that kind of yeah, you, you have those moments of that that fuck yeah scenario, but it's t- it tends not to be when people think it comes. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you know, you, you, people don't run around acting that way. Um, but anyway, but back to your question. I think, yeah, I was talking about this the other day because I was interviewed um, for an, an upcoming article, and again, it's one of those things. Um, I just sometimes I don't, it was a, quite a while ago, and I just sort of put it down to again having this, the training that I had, and I, was, and I was kind of grateful to to be in a position to fight back because it wasn't. I'm not saying that it it, it wasn't really the. I'm trying to think of the, the way to put it correctly without sounding like a douchebag. Like it, it didn't really feel like anything because it was it was what was meant to happen. Does that make make sense? Like I couldn't kind of say at that moment in time I felt anything because it was kind of like that was just it was a an event that unfolded and there was there was no choice um, given. It was well the the only choice was I was I was either going to get shot or obviously take. Um, take the the enemy fighter down and and then I'd, i laughed because a lot of people they say because it took me seven seven rounds to take this guy down but i was actually firing five five six so a lot of people said oh you're just wasting ammo and i was like well actually that's that's not that many rounds considering the sort of scenario the the engage you know wh- where you are on the battlefield it doesn't you just keep firing until someone drops it's not a case of i'm not you know i'm not a sniper but it's kind of it happened very quickly. But um, I think you're, yeah, I think you're 100 percent correct, and I think this is what you know baffles a lot of people when they ask, and I put it sometimes silly questions about an engagement or why you do things. Um, and the fact of the matter is, most people have never been outside of their comfort zone. You know, the comforts of social media, the comforts of their home, the comforts of their you know lily lifestyle, and. You know, they've never experienced a situation where a fight goes bad and you default to a primitive instinct. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's not like you feel exhilarated. It's simply you got the job done because of that split second. It's either they go home or I go home. And, you know, you know very well that you're going to go home and that's where you default to primitive and you shoot until that threat is extinguished. And then you scan and you move for the next one because that is how a warrior is. And I think a lot of people are perplexed by that you know, that thought process. Um, and that's why they, they listen and they read, um, and they try and understand, but we try to get, make that sense of the book and also kind of draw uh, a, a difference between a primitive engagement where, you know, you have a fight gone bad compared to a sniper where you're more of a voyeur, where you are watching somebody who is walking with a gun, who is very much alive, but you know, and they don't that in about three seconds, they're going to be very much dead. And there's a lot of things that go through your mind, mental checklists that you have to hit before you pull that trigger and squeeze and extinguish that, that life form. And, you know, it's not an easy process. It doesn't happen very, it can happen fast, but a lot of the times it's slow moving, it progresses and you have to be ready for it because, you know, those imprints in your mind can stick unless you, you know, have a clear conscience and you're doing the right thing. Yeah, and that's exactly that's exactly how you feel, isn't it? You just kind of it's and it, I I always look at it this way: is that you know there were I was um, part of OC's TAC, which is you know had the the officer commanding, my company commander, his driver, the radio operators, you know, an, an Afghan um, interpreter with me. And I think, well, if I hadn't have done what I did, you know, who's to say one of us was going to be going home? And I I find it far easier to live with what I did than to live with 
being that person that couldn't really come up to the mark, you know, couldn't um, sort of follow through and do what they'd sort of been trained to do. And then, uh, you know, and those sorts of things are like fleeting moments because within sort of 30 seconds, we've taken a casualty. And then, you know, aside of other guys were sort of um, engaging other threats, then I was clear to, to um, get involved with the casualty treatment. So things do happen um, quickly. And I guess at that, that moment in time, you know, cemented my relationship with the company that I supported. So then when we went on and had, you know, so, so many casualties, they, they kind of, they trusted, they trusted what I had to, to do and say. So that it made my life a lot easier on the battlefield. And, and then things got kind of, let's say, you know, the, the deployment became, I'm not saying easier as in the deployment was easier. My, my relationship with the guys on the ground became a lot easier. I agree. And I think your comfortability with yourself also um, it was yeah. a lot greater. And um, I think that, you know, kind of is a, a life lesson. You know, it doesn't you don't have to engage somebody in combat to, you know, you know, become more comfortable with yourself. Um, but when you have these life experiences, whether it's a fight or whether it's you are in combat, you know, you learn a lot more about yourself um, that you had previously not known. And I think that um, I think that speaks volumes to the people that have been in combat um, and have gone through those experiences. Yeah, and, and you know, just I'll add one more thing. I, I was asked a question in, in this recent interview, and um, it was about basically was I treated different as a woman? And I said, you know what? I said I went, I served with the 16 Air Assault Brigade, which is quite a ferocious brigade in the, the British military, and everyone who arrives there has to prove themselves, regardless of you, whether you're a man or a woman. And and that's how, what I take from that. It doesn't, it didn't make any odds. You know, if I, if I was a guy and didn't carry out that same thing, it would have been exactly the same outcome. So it was, it was just quite an interesting question to be asked where I thought, well, actually, it doesn't matter who you are. You know, you you going on team, even though you've just passed buds, you've still got to prove yourself. And that's the beauty of the military. It's a meritocracy. You're based on your performance, not your yeah. uh, not who you are. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's an interesting point to bring up because that's also a point that Kevin touched on in his book, you know, being a new guy uh, as a sniper and, and kind of having to go through that that process where you win the respect of, of your teammates. Um, and Kevin, what was that like for you? Uh, you know, it was, um, I guess it, it was about damn time. You know what I mean? Um, cause you go, you know, being a new guy in a platoon is, it's like being, you know, a, a, um, a brand new guy in a fraternity. I can imagine I was never in a fraternity or, you know, a new guy on a rugby team. Um, you know, you're, you're given like three tasks. It's like, have a pen and paper, you know, shut the fuck up, be seen, not heard. And, um, you go about these, you know, bottom of the barrel jobs, you know, loading pallets, breaking down, um, ammo cases and just doing the worst, of the worst. Um, and then you're expected, you know, to perform at the highest level cause you're a team guy and you do that because you want to be that guy that can instill that, you know, pain onto the next group of new guys. Um, but you know, I think like Chantel put it, you know, the way the deployment happened um, and it started happening fast that, oh, wow, a new guy get a kill. And then after a while, you know, well, new guys are killing people just like everybody else. And it becomes commonplace. So um, I don't think it was that much of a, um, a hurdle. I, I, I was happy that, you know, it got to the point where, you know, I started executing and do my job. Um, but then again, you know, we had superb, you know, enlisted leadership who, um, you know, kept us in check and didn't let you get too big for your britches uh, too early on. And I think that's what, um, it made us new guys very effective. And you sometimes you sometimes find, you know, you're talking about those sort of the crappy tasks, like the the breaking down of ammo and the pallet stuff. 
I used to sometimes get to a point where, you know, the responsibility got that great and it was a great thing, but I'd, I'd give anything to be back doing that shit job. Do you know what I mean? It was like, oh God, because you kind of, it, it gave you a little bit of respite in some ways. You know, you yeah, you, get to, yeah, you didn't have to think too hard. <laughs> it, it got monotonous. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah. there's, um, and, and that's, you just go to mong mode, couldn't you? <laughs> exactly, and and you build. I mean, you build such deep bonds with with the people who share in that you know that sacrifice. And um, you know, the new guys we had with you know Big Holes and Mark Lee and Johnny um, and Jason. You know, us, us enlisted new guys. You know, we're very strong together. And I think um, you know that's what uh, I mean. That's where you carry on long long after that deployment's gone and you know, those jobs have passed. It's like you know under that sweat and shit. You know, you make some true friends. Yeah, because it's, it's those experiences that you share and you all kind of, you know, that, that kind of feeling. It's a good thing. You know, many of my friends now are all, um, I serve with most of them. Right. So, Kevin, you're, you know, when you, when you got in your first deployment and, and I, I believe you talked about this in your book, your first time engaging an enemy was behind the sniper rifle? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And, so, yeah. So yeah, the first time um, yeah I was out in uh, at uh, Corregidor, which was the uh, the army base on the other side of the city, and um, you know we were in obviously a hostile area, and there's a lot of enemy activity not outside the wire, not too far outside the wire. So you know any chance we could get to you know get that first opportunity, you know, we took it. And mine happened to be up in a guard tower, um, you know, just in between little little after Chow to just kill some time because I didn't have anything else to do. Um, and went up there and I was up there with a couple army guys and it was behind the gun and, you know, it, it happened a lot faster than I guess I had antip- anticipated before. Um, but based where we were at in that guard tower, you know, guys were moving quick in and out of those buildings and across those little alleyways. Um, but it kind of, su- it kind of surprised me at how quick it ha- happened. Um, and then, you know, kind of how quick, you know, you go back to normalcy, almost like the first time you, you catch a wave and stand up on a surfboard and then, you know, next thing you know, it's no big deal. Um, but I, I kind of, I guess I, I was amazed at how unshocked I was with how I felt because I felt like, you know, I, I'm, we're not a lawnmower that cuts every single piece of grass. We're, you know, very precise surgical element that takes out one or two people here or there. Um, but I felt that after that, that time I interdicted that target that yes, I feel like I'm in that 2%. Um, and then it was reinforced throughout that deployment. And so just quickly, you know, kind of building on the the 2% aspect of it, would you say that it's important for a new guy going to war or a a platoon with, you know, a couple of new guys and then some guys who have the experience? Is it important for them to understand some of that psychology that is is taught in On Killing? And then uh, obviously uh, Lieutenant Colonel Grossman goes and speaks. Do you think that that's important for... Uh, developing the right mindset for a special operations guy who's going to be deploying to war over a number of years? I think it's important to start earlier. I think it's important, you know, um, to read that stuff before you join the military. Um, And I think there's a big push back in the late 90s, early 2000s, where, you know, join the military, go to college. And then, oh, no, 9-11 happens. We're in Afghanistan. And then we go to Iraq. And then we're all across the globe. And, you know, you're doing 18-month, you know, stopgap deployments. Um, and you might have to kill people. And I think it catches people off guard. And I think first and foremost, you know, as a 
individual who wants to be in the military, you know, you're always at the mercy of the of the military. You're going to go the needs of the Navy, the needs of the Army um, to fill gaps. And, you know, you may be in combat. That's why you know, most of us you know, should know that's why we joined the military. So I think it's good to know and read about that stuff, because when you're put in that situation, um, if, you know, for some reason, you know, that's that's not for you. You know, it, it's not as a complete shock. You know, it, it doesn't happen for everybody. Um, you know, that two percent. But, you know, it's something at least to have as a baseline um, for your basic knowledge. Right. And, and Chantel, is, is this book uh, on killing, is this something that you, you're familiar with or that you've read uh, before? Yeah, no, when, when you talk about um, Colonel Graceman, is that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, the, when you started talking about it, I, did, I realized who it was. Yeah, and it, things like that are extremely important. I think, again, if, if they're not read um, pre-military, they should at least be, um, he should be kind of a fixture during people people's basic training you know whether it's through quotation or through they should know who he is you know especially and i suppose likewise for someone um not dissimilar to him in the uk but i think those sorts of lessons um it's it's no good learning them afterwards is it because you could have you could be in a a whole sort of world and someone trying to explain that to you afterwards is is kind of a bit late but um yeah and, and but you know through memoirs through um, people's blogs, experiences. So long as people aren't giving away the, the the crazy information, which is you know, and by and large, people are quite good with that because most books nowadays have to be cleared through the, the military. So, um, right. and I, I think it's it's no bad thing. I was just laughing and appreciating how John likes the old um, long silent pauses. Let's let's have another awkward silence. Let's hopefully it's after I start um, stop speaking. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think it's funny, you know, the, uh, you, you mentioned giving away the secrets and stuff, you yeah. know, um, I mean, my book went through the DOD pretty quick, you know, I think it was like maybe, you know, a couple months. Yeah. So some people's take longer a year, you know, years or so, but yeah. you know, we're talking about like filtered and unfiltered media. I mean, you can go on social media, you can go on cool. YouTube and you can find tactics, you know, you don't have to look very hard. And I think that's uh-huh. kind of the funny thing about uh, yeah. some some of these books is like, you know, there's kind of that suppression. Like, I don't want you to give away tactics, but you know, heck you don't have to look very hard to, to find that unfortunately because of social media. Yeah. Right. It's just, a, it's about, you know, let's face facts with all the, the ways, the way weapons are going, the way people are developing, you know, I think it's a good thing, but sort of tactics, although they keep the basics the same, you know, then people's ability to maneuver is, is far better, isn't it? With the kit and equipment um, available now. So I agree, but I think, you know, <clears throat> I mean, there's tactics, there's going into rooms, um, and then there's this sheer putting the fear into the minds of the enemy. And, you know, one of the things that we did very well, um, you know, 350 times, which was interdict people with, you know, sniper rounds in a six-month yeah. period. And when you see the capabilities of U.S. snipers, and, you know, I, I can admit I'm not the best shot in the world. Um, a lot of our snipers were not the best shots in the world, but we had a lot of opportunity. But to see how snipers have become so effective heck i just read in the news yesterday that some you know canadian sniper hit somebody yeah. from like three thousand oh, yeah. meters I posted um, that. Yeah. and as long as as long as the enemy knows that there's a really good marksman you know somewhere out there that's going to make them you know operate in fear or at least in some part of the brain they're going to know that somebody's out there and i think um yeah that's and that gives the, the troops on the ground i, I remember we used to get such a like a morale boost and, and a confidence boost from having our you know snipers um, positioned in certain places. And it was it didn't lull you into a false sense of security. You just knew that they, those guys, 
had things covered. You know, they weren't they weren't there to mess around, and it, it just it makes such a difference to the morale of the blokes on the ground. And it's it's just like when the Apache turns up, everyone's like, oh, "Thank God for that." You know. Right. We had the same thing. You know, when we get shot out in the streets, and the armor would show up. You know, the Marines would come with their tanks, or army would come with their tanks, and their um, you know, Bradleys, and and that. Yeah, it's a sense of security, and I think yeah. the same applies for snipers uh, up on yeah. rooftops or in the hillside. And everyone, everyone wants to be one. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, it's it's interesting, kind of the the history of of snipers, at least in the in the American side. From um, in regards to how they're employed and the understanding of the the commanders who are employing them, you know what their skill sets are and, and how they, they can be best used. Um, and what's interesting about Ramadi and, and your experiences there and the, and the experiences of all the Marines, uh, Army soldiers, and and the SEALs who were there is, is the kind of the interoperable the interoperability of the um, different services. Which is really underrated um, in in kind of what what people would imagine you know executing a war is, is like. And what's also interesting, Kevin, about some of the going to sniper school and whatnot is uh, different slots are open up for different sniper schools. And if I'm not mistaken, special operations guys have the choice to go to a, a different sniper school from a different branch, right? Correct. Yeah. You know, it's the, like I said, the needs of the Navy. I had a uh, army sniper school spot open up for me and I went to army sniper, you know, Fort Benning. Um, I did that course and, um, you know, I went on a different, used a different platform than the, uh, than the gun I ended up using in the, in the SEAL teams. But I think the the skill set still, you know, it still parallels. Um, and, you know, you mentioned the interoperability of different units. I went to sniper school with a couple army snipers and then lo and behold, you know, two years later, we're you know in in the talk and ready to uh, do a uh, commander's brief on our op, and two of the army snipers I went to school with you know showed up and they helped supplement you know our team. So you know the the military is small, um, the sniper sniper groups even smaller, um, but the power of you know employing snipers on a battlefield um, really does change the dynamic and the capacity. Like I said, the force multiplying capacity of conventional troops. And I think, um, the way that, um, the, you know, task force leadership employed special ops, particularly the SEAL team in Ramadi, you know, we didn't do anything different than anybody else, but we were able to bring a different dynamic and help, you know, make that coalition force just a little bit bigger with our sniper capabilities. And it's pretty impressive when I, you know, I think of some of those, um, those sort of hardcore gem, um, American commanders out there and, you know, they, I quite like the ones that are quite the mavericks, you know, they kind of, they do try different things and, and they're not scared to, and obviously that, that decision there paid off massively. It's quite, sure. it's quite to have the sort of the balls to, to, to make those decisions. So, you know, we're going to do it. And, yeah. And complacency kills on the battlefield. And I think the more, um, you know, you're, you're on your edge and you change tactics and you shift tactics yeah. and you keep the enemy on their heels you know, the more dynamic you will be and then, you know, the more at a disadvantage the enemy will be. And yeah, fortunately, you know, the, the different groups, the Marines and the Army were willing to accommodate us and, you know, use us. And a lot of the times they're like, you know, have at it. And that's where our enlisted leadership stepped up, like Tony and Chris and, and looking for areas we could move to and how we could be gainfully employed and help, you know, protect our Army, um, Army Marine brothers and sisters. And I know, like you've probably you've been asked this like a million times. What was it like making that film? Because it was, you know, it was a brilliant film. 
Megan Sniper. Um, yeah. People always like, was it was it like being in Ramadi? Um, yeah, I was like, yeah, until they say cut, and then you're like, hey, can I get a bottle of water? And somebody <laughs> run up with a bottle of water. Um, it's it was interesting, you know. You, you, and me, and you know, every everybody who's part of this, you know, has an idea of how we see combat, and especially those that that have been there are such a small group. Um, and you, you, you want to hold on as memory and like make sure you get it right. And you're like, this is how combat really is. And then you go to a movie and you're like, ah, oh, that's not how combat is. So, as a technical advisor and acting in the movie, watching you know Clint and Bradley and, and you know the writer and how they you know interpreted. And that's, that's important to say how they interpreted combat and how they brought it to the big screen. Um, you know, it was not exactly how it happens. You know, that's just that's movie. That's movie business. Um, so being on set, it, it, you know, it's a personal story. So it's, it's tough to see some things you know, get taken out and other things be added that weren't, you know, absolutely correct. Um, but you have to go for the overall intention. It was an yeah. artistic representation of Chris and the SEAL teams. And, um, you know, being a part of that was special. Um, being a part of it and um, help tell the story of you know, team guys and the Army and the Marines um, was huge. And the outpouring of support since the movie came out has been even greater. And I, I'm appreciative of that. And even like, like for, for someone like me um, and obviously people in the UK, just seeing the sort of response response to the likes of you and, and Chris Kyle, I think it's amazing. You know, you really get people get really get behind their, their, their guys and their troops. And I just think. It's something that I'm not saying, you know, people are really nice here about it, but there's there's a marked difference of how, you know, like what um, the way Texas, you know, treats his memory and stuff and the way his wife's taken in. And I just, it's really something to, I think that people, you know, people should be proud of the, the way that they, they treat their veterans. Yeah, I can, you know, I can speak for Americans. If you watch that opening scene of Patton, you know, Patton puts it correctly. He's like, America loves winners. And, you know, I think Chris was, a prime example of that and you know being a son of texas you know texas has definitely embraced him but just to see now i go i speak quite a bit around the country um and i always ask people you know who hasn't seen american sniper and you know you might get one or two hands going up and just about everybody yeah. has yeah. and it's that story of chris and you know primarily american exceptionalism and i think that um resonated with a bunch of people and you know it still does to this day and he's become a household name yeah yeah definitely it's a yeah. good thing. And I think it's, you know, it's a good thing, obviously, that to have the, the support of the people uh, for uh, soldiers, sailors, airmen, uh, Marines. And I think, you know, looking back at like Vietnam, for example, you know, after 68, uh, the the military lost the support, not all the, you know, all the support, but a major, a large majority of the public was really against the military and uh a good friend of mine, Tim Kozak, he's an army veteran and he is the, uh, the creator of the veterans project where they, you know, he follows a veteran for a day, takes some really good photos and they get a nice story out of, out of that veteran and they focus on the transitional process. But the reason I bring up Tim is because when he was uh, finishing up his degree, he's from Texas as well. His professor kind of pushed him in the direction of doing this. And part of her motivation for doing that was because she told him that she was protesting the Vietnam War and and she felt really bad about it looking back at, you know, what, you know, because people are out there protesting the policy, right? But, you know, yeah. some of these guys are coming home, you know, missing their arms, missing their legs, uh, you know, watching their then teammates. Yeah. Right. And then they come home to have their, their, their fellow countrymen 
you know, spitting in their face and and doing all this crazy stuff. And it was just to me, I thought it was incredible how she she felt so bad that she wanted to push him into doing something in that veteran space. Uh, and and for her, it, it felt like a way of her kind of. Uh, you know, giving back and and uh, fixing what what she felt like was a mistake in her past. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, it's a good point. I think you know, there's different as we age and mature. I mean, you go through different periods of your life where you're extremely passionate. And you know, for me, in my 20s, when I was extremely passionate, passionate, I became a seal and wanted to go kill terrorists. You know, other people will become like, you know, rabid anti-war protesters. And you know, you have your passions, then you mature. And um, you know, it really came full circle. Um, now I got to tell you a story. Uh, when I came back from my last deployment, I rotated back with, um, guy, he guy Buttonsack. He's a, um, an officer in my platoon and him and I came back on the same bird and we flew, um, from Germany back to the States with a army unit that had been deployed for a, for a year. And, you know, we kind of hung in the back cause you know, it wasn't our show and, you know, we normally fly to, you know, uh, out to Coronado on the way back and not really catch a transport bird. But we landed at BWI and, you know, we came off the ramp and walked into the terminal. And I'll never forget the amount of support that we got, which was 180 degrees from your buddy's experience in Vietnam. You know, I had, we had people from World War II, Korea, you know, Gulf War, you know, recent Iraq or Afghanistan veterans welcoming us. But I will never forget you know, what I saw in those Vietnam bets and, you know, the amount of support, you know, dudes with tears streaming down their face, you know, just giving us hugs and stuff. And they were just so proud of the response and, you know, what we had done. And I remember turning to a guy and saying, I was like, shit, man. I'm like, do those dudes endure the shit they had to so we could have this homecoming? And I think it, you know, it was one of the coolest experiences I had in the military because I got to see veterans supporting other veterans you know have taken those licks so we could enjoy what we have today and it was really powerful and i think it you know goes to show you um you know the sacrifices people have made before you to ensure the lifestyle you have today right and and i think you know especially for the for that generation i mean those guys got a really raw deal i mean they they fought a very tough war in a, a difficult environment you know a difficult terrain and then you know to come home to that and and you know, uh, people talk, you hear the number of 22 veterans committing suicide a day, uh, you know, and people raise awareness and, and do all these things. And, and that's great, you know, and uh, people do this with, with good intentions. And this isn't a knock on people who are who are doing something that they feel like is right. But, you know, the truth is that the number is higher than 22. Uh, you know, there's discrepancies in the way they collect these numbers. And uh, some places, the 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 number of veterans committing suicide are not accounted for and, and that kind of thing. But another thing that people don't really talk about enough is that the majority of the veteran suicides that are taking place in America are Vietnam veterans. And, you know, these, these guys, you know, I've, I've talked to different uh, Vietnam guy, guys who served in Vietnam, particularly in, in special forces, uh, Green Berets. And, you know, they, I, I, I've never forget this, and I've spoken about this on a podcast before. I'm friends with two of these guys on Facebook and, uh, you know, he posted some military video and they were kind of commenting back and forth with each other. And, and both of these guys served in uh, MACV SOG in Vietnam. So a very elite unit uh, running, you know, very dangerous operations behind enemy lines. And what they were saying to each other was that, you know, every night at a certain time, 
you know, he wakes up because he has these nightmares. And another thing he said was that it get it's gotten worse over time for him with old age, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I think a, a huge part of that, you know, the, the issue that guys have is, is the transition from, you know, being in a, in a, a military unit, infantry unit, special ops, you know, you're going a hundred miles an hour and then you're out and then your life is completely different. But, you know, with today's day and age, there are resources and and people do support our troops, you know, and, and even if you're not around someone who you can talk to about it, you can just you can go on social media and meet people. You know, you can have conversations, email, whatever it is. But during those days, they didn't have that. And a good friend of mine who, who comes on a podcast uh, often, his name is Mike Stahl. He was a, a Green Beret in Vietnam. He he had a I believe it was a, a cousin or a a nephew who's who served in Vietnam in an infantry unit and they both got out around the same time and he said they never had one conversation about Vietnam and and that's just how it was it was like taboo you know and I think not talking about it and keeping it bottled up for so many years is is what is leading to some of those high suicide rates you know among these veterans yeah, I think you're 100% correct um you know a good friend of mine Jake Schick uh you know runs 22 kill and, um, you know, he's brought a lot of awareness to veteran suicides. And you're absolutely right. You know, the collection, the numbers, you know, and, and they have been hypothesized that they are higher than, than 22. And that's one too many. Um, you know, one is one too many. And yeah. it boils down to communication. Um, you know, I, I, I went into it and I can speak just only for myself. You know, I went into it knowing very well that you know, when I get to a SEAL team, because I, quitting was not an option. When I get to a SEAL team, you know, I will go to combat, and there are there are chances that I might not make it back, or friends of mine. And I and I told myself these are things that I'm willing to shoulder, um, not knowing if I would ever experience that, and I did. And you know, for me, it's been more of a rational. You know, that is my experience. I volunteered for it, and those are the results. Um, but I've been fortunate to communicate those, and I, I communicate. You know, we talk about it here. Um, you know, with my friends. Um, and when I go out and speak, and I think the more you're able to talk about that, the more you open up, you don't let your guard down. You don't become a pussy. You're still a tough guy, but you know, you're able to share those experiences and people can you know understand where you've come from because truth be told, if you've been Mac Vsog or you've been a grunt in Afghanistan or in Iraq, you've been through some shit. And a lot of people are never going to understand where you've come from unless you tell them. And I think when you tell them you know, you go ahead and educate them, which allows them to help you as you transition, you know, because you were very effective on your battlefield in Iraq and Afghanistan. Let's go ahead and shift focus and find a new battlefield here, which you can make a difference. And I see these and every day when I see veterans that are successful business owners, they go to school, they're working in healthcare, and it impresses me. And I think the more we communicate and tell people what we've been and done, um, the better it is for our transition and then also future generations that serve. Yeah, that's definitely right. And and then, you know, to add to that, it's also I, I like the way that a lot of these clubs have now started up, whether they be guys going out on bike rides, whether they be the We Defy, the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu side, you know, the, all of yeah. these different things that people are getting involved in. It's either, you know, there's a there's, it's like that club mentality, even for us. But, you know, over here that we have footy teams that, you know, you go and support and it's that same kind of feeling where you feel like you're still part of that family, but you, you can start to... You know, you, and you accept the stuff that you've experienced, and you and you you sort of use it to try and make you a better person. But right. and that's or you you know use some sort of form of creativity. It doesn't have to be about writing everything. It could be, 
creativity in other forms, you know, and, and other sorts of things. But um, I do think it's important that, you know, if you think about the Vietnam vets, the stuff that that modern day soldiers could learn from those vets, you know, it should, there should be, you know, potentially something, their, their jungle warfare skills, there's, there's so much there, isn't there, that they should always sort of be valued. Any 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 sort of person that's gone before us should always be valued for what what we can learn from them. And then, then obviously with that comes support. And you know, like you say, you know, one's too many. There shouldn't be someone out there that feels that they get that low that they're going to take their own life. And I know even in like, and this is just a thing, I think across the board that generally there is, there's a certain age group in the, in the UK of um, suicide um, attempts are, are more often to happen or more often than not happening at, by young men. And I don't know what that is. I don't know how that happens. I think it's through the, through the years, you know, men have always been told to sort of keep, keep shit in and then having said that you don't you don't you don't want guys to then like you said kevin to turn into suddenly these over emotional beings that are kind of, you know because it just the dynamic would kind of go a bit strange but um there certainly has to be some somewhere to meet in the middle there's got to be and i reckon maybe these groups are helping you know they're the, they're the groups that people can go to veteran run you're not necessarily put in front of a doctor and getting put on a thousand meds you know, so yeah. I mean, it's just one of those things that I don't think is ever going to be perfect. But as long as I, I'd like to feel like we do our bit for those that have gone before us, then that's that's surely how the system works. Right. Yeah. Well, you know the the whole medication part of it. You know, it's a huge problem here in America, even outside of the veteran community. Um, you know, people are addicted to these painkillers. You know, and yeah. and it's really becoming a problem. But what what kind of makes it worse? is it's it's driven by profit you know uh it's, yeah. it's a huge business and you know they these these companies have their they have their teeth uh you know in in congress with politicians you know they they bought them out and it's really a problem but a lot of veterans i uh, have talked about how they they were like on a a downward spiral and you know they're on 10 different medications every day uh drink on top of drinking and and whatnot and some of these guys, or, or most of them that I've heard stories from and talked to, is once they stop taking those pills, that's when the process began of them healing, you know. And mm-hmm. and what what's interesting about what Kevin is doing now is um, with his physician work, they do some really cool stuff with uh, like increasing performance, right, and, and some of that kind of thing. Kevin, can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I came down here and started working with Dr. Dave LeMay. Um, and, you know, Dr. LeMay has uh, worked in PMR, physical medicine, rehabilitation, and um, has branched off recently, you know, um, in the last couple of years of doing, you know, more of this A4M work, which is a more naturopathic way of looking at performance, um, you know, getting down to the details of cortisol and stress and how that affects your overall performance and sleep. And, you know, we in our clinic see a lot of veterans from the special, oper- special operations community and beyond um, who, you know, are turning towards this more natural approach, getting away from these medications and are finding, you know, that not just the mental healing, but also, you know, the physical healing, because those opioids suppress for such a long period of time that eventually you're going to have to deal with those, with those receptors. Um, and we do, and, um, you know, we don't, not everybody who comes in has PTSD. Um, we have people that are broken from 20, 25 years on the job who are trying to mend, who have been on Motrin for 20 years and what we do is we look at a more natural approach. And how can we get this person 
up to where they should be, um, you know, with basic nutrients, with basic supplements, um, and how to get them back to that performance level. Because once your body feels good, then your mind feels good. And, um, we try and target that physiologic uh, aspect. How's it going? going? Is it going good? Are you, you know, you seeing really good results? Yeah, we've done well. Um, you know, we've teamed up with some, with some really good docs around the country. And, um, and Dr. LeMay has, has been, you know, he is a, a, a true, you know, I call him a pirate. He has opened my eyes on so many different levels um, with how to look at things and his knowledge of pathophysiology and how things work down at the micro level um, has really opened my eyes to you know, how how many times we've um, we've given our veterans a raw deal by just putting them through a uh, a meat grinder and you know expecting good results all the time. And we develop you know very patient specific plans and we follow the patient. It's a lot of time invested. Um, but the results are there and, you know, we get veterans and we get active duty guys who get off a lot of these medications, a lot, a lot of, a lot off these, um, you know, pain medications and sleep medications and back to your know, normal function. And that's something that is a, this, the concept of that could be something that's looked at for even respite. So guys that are still operating at that sort of high, the highest level, we you know, do. sometimes they, rather than wait until they burn out maybe interject earlier on and say, right, you, you know, almost like enforced rest, get it done. And then they get back in. Potentially you could, you could see off the problems occurring later. I don't know, you know, that sort of thing. Cause guys, we just do. they burn out. Yes. Yeah, so, so we do, we, we, we work with a lot of um, special operations groups at a bunch of different tier levels and um, right. you know, and it's looking at, you know, basic nutrition, micronutrients, hormones, um, you know, your, your basic cholesterol and going beyond that. Um, and, getting a baseline and correcting a lot of these disease processes before they, you know, become out of control or when they retire. Um, and you're absolutely right. So when you get out and, you know, John, you brought up earlier, you get out of the military, you transition, then you kind of like stall in the water. Same thing physiologically. We have guys that are, you know, pushing through pain, breaking those thresholds and keeping going for 20 years and they stop. And then everything, all of a sudden the car breaks down like a year later. And, um, so we get guys early in their career to help, you know, mitigate some of these disease processes. So when they get out, they're not broken down. They can still function and take that career and start a second career. And that's another thing that's the only thing that we were quite happy about. Um, You know, sometimes I'm not a technophobe, but the way that things are moving forward, you'd wish they'd slow down. But in that area, that's that's a bit you want to speed up, you know, because it's it's helping. And if you imagine if, if the way that we're thinking and people, like the doctor you're working with, if we had people like that, back in the days of the Vietnam war or, you know, the Falklands and things like that, it might've, it might've made a difference to those guys that are, you know, are, are taking their lives. I agree. Yeah. The, the Falklands was rough. I mean, it, it wasn't a long conflict, but if, if I remember correctly, I think I read that more, uh, veterans from the UK military, uh, committed who served in the Falklands died from by suicide than guys who were killed in combat. Yeah, and I always put it down to a lot of the time. It's what sense? It's almost like the forgotten wars, isn't it? It's those ones like Vietnam was obviously the hard left, you know, wanted that not to happen. So the the, the abuse that the veterans got, the Falklands was kind of quick, and then it was over with, and the country was going through other changes. So people kind of get like we've all but forgotten about Northern Ireland now, and it's the same sort of process. You kind of the world moves quickly, and they forget very quickly. It's weird. Yeah. Strange. You're right. Yeah. So, Kevin, um, can you share a story uh, with the audience 
uh, maybe from a deployment or something that just stood out to you uh, during your time in the service? Um, hmm. You got to give me a minute on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, if, indeed, if, you, you pulled me off guard. I was if you if you pick up, if you, I thought I thought I told that story earlier about coming back from Iraq. No, uh, I mean if you pick up the Last Punisher, there's tons of stories in there about that stood out enough to for me to put them in a book. Um, yeah, I mean you know a, a lot of times you know people always focus on like you know the intensity of combat and what I what I wanted to do with the Last Punisher was was definitely show um, the. Uh, the low points where you're not doing as much as, you know, your friends think you are. It's like that meme where like what I do, what my friends think I do, what my mom yeah. thinks I do, yeah. what I'm actually doing. Yeah. Um, but we had, we were in, we were out on the Syrian border in, in um, 2008 and it was not the intensity level that, uh, you know, we experienced um, in 2006. I mean, my, my, my main trauma that I had to deal with is one of my, one of my guys in my platoon was operating a nail gun and shot a nail through his hand that we had to go ahead and pull out. Um, but we used to, you know, we used to have a lot of fun with, um, with, uh, a lot of our technical support. So we, you know, our, one of our officers was like, man, we really got to fuck with this, these guys, the, the nerds, as we called them, the guys that were, you know, they, they pick up all the, you know, chatter on the radio waves and help, you know, find out where the bad guys were. And we'd, yeah. rove around and stuff and, and we, we planned an operation to go out and you know, we got all everybody all the team guys were all on on the same page and we got the the nerds in there for the brief we totally played it off like it was a you know we're going to expect casualties somewhere and they're like at least 50 percent casualties in the op you know just do the ieds and the small arms fire and stuff and by the time you know our platoon chief got up there and gave his fire and brimstone talk about you know how dangerous the area was and our oic gets up there and echoes the same sentiments you know, we're jock, we're jocking up, getting ready to roll out. And I'm like putting in extra magazines and I got like frag grenades hanging off. And like these nerds are like about to lose their shit. Like, I mean, they're like ghost face, like had never been in combat before. You know, they barely, you know, their rifle shaking in their hands. <laughs> we take off and it was like, it was like driving Miss Daisy. It was the easiest hop. And then, you know, we went around, did our little deal and came back. And these guys were literally shitting bricks the entire time. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's just just fucking with guys, you know, when they go into combat, and and I mean that's that's what it's about. It's about um, you know, not taking everything so damn seriously, and you know, having a good time because shit, you know, you you can only fight a war for so long in your physical lifetime, and you gotta have some fun with it. And we had some fun with the turds, uh, the uh, the the nerds. <laughs> I said turds. Freudian <laughs> <laughs> slip. I'm at 08 deployment, but it was good time. Good times. But even, you know, you laugh that just bringing that humour in. Um, well, I was on, there was some sort of um, feed on Facebook not so long ago. And there was a, there were a lot of um, guys, spec op guys and just people, diff- different people chatting. And the banter was really, it was comedy. You know, people were just, that dark humour was coming out. And somebody came on and, you know, was absolutely disgusted at this. You know, they couldn't believe what they were reading. That these they didn't know about any of the backgrounds of the people that were talking on this feed. And it was just like, wow. So, you know, it, <laughs> I never. I felt so like far removed, and thought, well, maybe it is us. Maybe we we're, we're the ones with the issues. <laughs> maybe maybe we are weird. <laughs> yeah, which is weird. And then if it's not weird, then make it weird. You know, it's almost exactly. like you can make it the weirdest or the most well, like awkward. I- the, the one the one quote I've always you know lived my 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 team career with was the old Hunter S. Thompson when the going gets weird the weird turn pro, and if you want to be a good team guy you want to be a good operator you want to be a good you know soldier I mean live by that phrase when the going gets yeah. weird the weird turn pro. That's true, isn't it? You've got to be the sort of the weirdest at the table. Yep. 
Yeah, well, I think it's it's interesting because even outside of like um, you know military war fighting or tactics or you know strategy, military strategy, uh, the lessons from these stories uh, can be applied to life, and I think that's you know that's the reason why people would pay you, Kevin, to uh, go and speak to their group or company or whatever it is, and even that that short story you just told right there you know kind of the 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 message of not taking yourself too seriously can really apply to your entire life you know and i mean obviously you have to take yourself serious and and take what you're doing serious but to to kind of i think it's it's a it's, there's a quote i forget who the hell wrote it but it's to you know think lightly of yourself and deeply of the world you know and and I think that's a lesson that can apply everywhere in life. Yeah, you're right, man. And you know, when I when I speak to people, um, I heard a you know a great SEAL admiral you know use this phrase. It was you know flash to bang. So you know to make sense of it, you know when you see a lightning strike, you know as a kid you'd like count how many seconds till you heard the the thunder rumble, kind of give you an idea of how far away from you know the actual lightning strike you are. And there's a um, there's a time frame for everything and. You know, when I got out of the Navy in 2010, you know, that flash to bang was pretty fast. I was just there. I just got out of combat, just finished my time in the teens. But I'm seven years out of that. And that flash to bang, that count is, is going and it's getting wider and wider. Um, but the principles that I learned, you know, about myself, you know, the things I learned about myself in training, um, I still carry out to this day as, you know, a teammate in, in the practice, um, you know, and then how I, you know, just complacency kills, things like that are very applicable, although that flash to bang has been extended. Um, and I think a lot of veterans who are listening, you know, it doesn't matter how long that flash, if you were in Vietnam to where you're at now, I mean, you learn things that a lot of people have never experienced because they've never been in combat and you can always use that to your advantage. And I think, um, you need to keep things in perspective. Um, but you are an asset in any battlefield you go to because of the experiences you've, you've had and done. Yeah, and when in this in this sort of day and age in the current climate, you know, those people are a godsend. You know, and I hope they never have to use it. But I know that I'd rather be standing with with someone like that who has you know had has gumption. And you see, we see it even in our civilian sector. There are people out there that you know are prepared to go above and beyond what's really expected of them. And that's I think that's a good thing. You know, it's a good thing. Agreed. There was another long awkward silence. I mean, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love those to be honest <laughs> such an asshole John it's levity I like it <laughs> leaves um, you hanging <laughs> so so Kevin uh, if anybody wants to keep up with you and, and uh, maybe get their hands on a copy of your book what's the best place that they can do that sure uh, you can go to www.kevinlace.com um, I've got links from there to Books, shirts, coins, um, also links to our charity, Hunting for Healing. Um, our website is huntingforhealing.org. Um, and you can pick up a copy of The Last Punisher um, at Barnes & Noble's Books A Million, um, online, Amazon. And we've also, um, we've released in Spanish. Um, we've released in uh, German. And um, I think that's it for right now. But we have Czech and uh I think check, yeah, checks coming out next. So I'll keep you abreast. But if you go to www.kevinlays.com, you can find all that information out. Hey, you know, actually, I'm glad you mentioned the hunting for healing because I completely forgot to ask you about that. Can we talk about that quickly before we get out of here? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, 
Yeah, as I mentioned last time, uh, hunting for healing, it really began when my wife, uh, Lindsay, and I were hunting in Africa in uh, 2015. We were just putting pen to paper, working on The Last Punisher. And I've been to Africa two years prior to that hunting and enjoyed it. And I wanted to bring my wife out there because aesthetically, Africa is beautiful. Um, people are amazing. And how you get to shoot big animals. So I took Lindsay out there and she's from a hunting family, but had never hunted for herself. And it was always wondering like, what do you do when you go hunting? And she saw it. It's about deer camp. It's about the stories. It's about the hunt. And then it's about the, uh, the process afterwards. So, you know, she, she launched hunting for healing, which is a 501 C three out of Texas, out of uh, Florida, excuse me. And the mission is to take injured veterans and their spouses on hunting, fishing, outdoor activities to, Brand, uh, you know, you know, in, in, in intensify that communication between the relationship. And we've been on a, a bunch of different trips. We were in Africa uh, at the beginning of May, and we took a former ranger who lost both his legs below the knee and his wife. And then oh. we took a former um, and recently retired Air Force EOD guy and his wife and um, took them out there. And it, we had a hell of an experience. We, we did the hunt, um, hunted seven days in Namibia. Plains antelope, and we got to give back to the community. You know, a lot of people focus on hunting as just shooting animals, and those people have no idea what hunting is when they say that. And um, what we did was we got to shoot some animals and take the meat to the local villages, and and got to you know meet a lot of the people and play some soccer and and really um, bring everything full circle. And it was great to see American servicemen and women, you know, giving back to the communities um, through the hunt. So we're uh, we're full bore ahead with hunting for healing, and we got a couple trips um, up in the future. And if you know anybody who um, is interested or you want to nominate somebody, go to www.huntingforhealing.org. Um, I know we've got an archery hunt in Ohio coming up. Um, and we've got Costa Rica coming up again in the spring and a bunch more hunts. So go check it out for information. Awesome. Yeah, that's a brilliant, well, a brilliant, um, a brilliant thing. And actually it's really, really cool that your, your wife started that. That's really cool. Yeah, she's, you know, she is a, a definite Spartan woman and, um, you know, it was her passion project. She's, uh, her father was in the Navy for 30 some odd years, um, you know, and he was a naval attaché to Denmark and she's moved a, a bunch, you know, with the Navy and, you know, has always been supportive of the military. And then when her and I met, um, you know, she got immersed in the SEAL culture and, you know, a lot of our friends, a lot of our mutual friends are team guys and their wives. And, um, you know, having worked on Sniper and, um, you know, doing what we do now, it fueled her to, to give back. And, um, she looks at it from the spouse perspective. Cause I think that's, you know, that, as you know, it's the toughest job in the military. And, um, a lot of, a lot of guys see hunting as an outlet to get away from the spouse. And I think, um, you know, if you can make that bond stronger and we try to, by getting people off the grid, you know, they can understand why you hunt and why you like to. And also yeah. on a side note, you know, it's, it's cool to like, for, you know, um, one of the couples we took, uh, they'd been married for 17 years and they'd never been on a honeymoon together, never been on a vacation together. And she had never seen him, you know, train or shoot or any of that stuff. So it was cool to watch, you know, Chris, you know, train his wife, Lauren, how to shoot. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's awesome to get that vet back into his wheelhouse and, you know, back to yeah. that operator status. And also, again, in the current climate it, it, with um, the women, women that get involved in those things, it, it, you know, they have that that feeling of they can actually protect themselves and that's actually there's no better feeling of of being empowered you know by mm -hmm. giving, being given the knowledge and the tools to to protect yourself i think that's a really good thing yep yep 
Right, so I've got one last question. It's a yes or no answer, Kevin. It's a bit of a joke, so you've got to answer it honestly. Have you ever said to anyone, I was in Baghdad when you were in your dad's bag? <laughs> <laughs> yes or no? No, no but I'm going to have to use that, though. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I was. <laughs> Someone asked me to ask you that, so I had to get there at the end. <laughs> That's perfect. I'm going to use that, though. Yes, it is. <laughs> All right. Well, right really, it, yeah, it was really great having you on, man. Yeah. I appreciate it, Chantel. John, thank you so much. It's been awesome. And take care. Stay safe. Likewise, you too. And with that, we'll close out for this week's podcast. Uh, before we go, I just want to say today is the 12th anniversary of the uh, Operation Red Wings, in which uh, U.S. Navy SEALs initially. Uh, four SEALs went into Afghanistan, into a, a region of Afghanistan, and were uh, tasked with uh, special reconnaissance, surveillance, and they were discovered, they were ambushed, and three of the SEALs were killed. Uh, Lieutenant Michael Murphy was the uh, team leader. As I, as you heard in the introduction, uh, the citation but by President George W. Bush he stepped in. He knew the only way that they would have any chance of survival was if they were able to communicate with the base. So he stepped into a clearing, got on the phone, got in contact with the base, let them know what was happening. Uh, he had no cover, and he was able to let them know. They sent a quick reaction force to come and try and get these guys, and he was killed. Uh, as he was hanging up the phone, the quick reaction force helicopter was shot down, killing everybody on board. And at the time, this was the worst loss of life in Afghanistan and the worst loss of life for naval special warfare uh, for a very long time. Uh, Marcus Luttrell was the only survivor of this incident, and we just—I just want to, you know, remember this uh, as it's important to remember these men who made the ultimate sacrifice and service for our country. Um, and with that, we'll close it out. My website is globalrecon.net. My Facebook account is FB Recon. My Instagram account is IG Recon. The second account is Black Ops Matter. The third account is uh, Chantel Taylor's military account is mission underscore critical. I'm on there from time to time. Uh, you can check us out on LinkedIn, so it's Global Recon on Twitter, IG Recon. Be sure to subscribe, like, and download and share these episodes with your friends and family. And that way, uh, we will continue to bring you guys good quality content uh, week after week. Uh, we have some really good episodes uh, lined up for you guys over the next couple of weeks. Uh, and we hope you enjoy it. Peace.